My whole goal was to help not just us with our children, but us with ourselves to make sure Jesus is central Christmas throughout. Not let the holiday, not let the commercialism, not let the decorations, not let the parties take over. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. One of the most surprising things about Christmas is that the earliest Christians didn't celebrate it at all. The idea was just too pagan. Not long thereafter, though, the human propensity to observe important events and to have a party began to create a celebration like none other. Today on In Good Faith, we'll take you back to an interview with Dr. Eric D. Huntsman from a few years ago upon the publication of his book on the advent of the birth of Christ called Tidings of Great Joy. In this book, he creates a wonderful mix of history, facts, doctrine, stories, and illustrations to engage readers of every age and intellectual bent. Along the way, of course, you'll encounter wise men, shepherds, angels, Joseph and Mary, and all the familiar elements of Christmas cast in a revealing new light. I think you'll also enjoy a heartfelt chapter on Christmas with autism, showing one family's discovery of ways to fill the season with joy for every family member, no matter their needs. Dr. Huntsman is a professor and coordinator of Ancient Near Eastern Studies in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. Dr. Eric Huntsman from BYU, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me again, Steve. Now, before we talked about Easter and your book, God So Loved the World, The Final Days of the Savior's Life, I love that because it really showed me how a family can prepare for Easter more than just, hey, it's coming up next Sunday, there'll be a choir program. You do something similar with this publication, Good Tidings of Great Joy, an Advent Celebration of the Savior's Birth. We're recording this in August, even though we'll be playing it likely in November and December. Mention why, if you would. Well, the book will be in the bookstores hopefully in October, and of course, we pushed in November, December, leading up to the holiday. But just five days from today, when you and I are recording this in mid-August, my family and I are moving to Jerusalem. I'll be teaching at the BYU Jerusalem Center for a year. You will be celebrating Christmas in a whole new way. Oh, a whole new way. And you know, my daughter and I have been talking about this, and she's been so influential in both these books because she was my first child, and she was the one who really made me think about how to teach these stories from the Scriptures and how to celebrate these holidays with a purpose. And she is just thrilled to celebrate Christmas and Easter in the Holy Land. All these things we've been doing since she was little. And, you know, I was telling her on Christmas Eve day, we hope to go to Bethlehem and don't know if we'll be able to stay that evening. You know, it's very crowded. All the pilgrims come. And anyway, it's going to be wonderful. And my little son, whom hopefully we'll talk about as we get into this, it's going to give him a real concrete understanding of the people and places of the scriptures, which with his particular challenges is really going to be a blessing for us, I think. Well, the thing I love about this book is that you mix storytelling. There's definitely an element of what will catch the eye of the kids with the pictures, and you can point out the wise men or the magi, whatever you decide to call them. A very family-friendly book. We all know about Advent. We think we know about Advent because our kids have all come home with 25 rings of construction paper to cut one off every day. But will you talk about where that actually comes from? Well, you know, that's interesting. Most people know about Advent, as you say, from some kind of, of game or you know, something that they can do to count down to Christmas. More people, perhaps, than the rings have an Advent calendar where yeah. you know, every day in December. 
December has a little pocket and you open the it little up. doors. But Advent actually started as a preparatory period. Before it was even associated with Christmas, it was actually the preparatory period for Epiphany, which is January 6th, which was when in the early church people were baptized into the church, converts were baptized. So it was a very solemn period. Early Christian church. Yeah, but later in the Middle Ages, the popes decided to use it to prepare for the Feast of the Nativity, Christmas. And so it is, at least in Western Christianity, become standard for it to be the four weeks of preparation now for Christmas. It's celebrating the Advent or the coming of Jesus. And in most traditions, the Roman Catholic tradition, Lutheran tradition, the Anglican tradition, it's celebrated as four Sundays. So the four Sundays before Christmas Eve are times to solemnly anticipate the coming of Jesus by using prophecies from the Old Testament, special music, etc., to focus their attention on the real meaning of Christmas. I really prefer that to the gotta get ready for Christmas, which means pull out some decorations and buy something for everybody on my list. Well, you know, in addition to kind of weaving Advent in between the chapters of, of this book, which is about the infancy narratives, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, I also have an appendix that has something for every day in December if you want stories and songs and scriptures. My whole goal was to help not just us with our children, but us with ourselves, to make sure Jesus is central Christmas throughout. Not let the holiday, not let the commercialism, not let the decorations, not let the parties take over. I think most of us do a pretty good job on Christmas Eve of slowing down and maybe reading the Christmas story yeah. or singing Silent Night, gathering with our families. We're pretty good, I think, at that moment. But if there's something you can do at least those four Sundays before Christmas and perhaps every day of December leading up to Christmas to just kind of keep the attention on the scriptural accounts of Jesus, the prophecies leading up to his coming and the scriptural accounts of that divine conception, miraculous birth, it keeps the spirit truly in the holiday. You go through the history of the celebration or even a period in, in Puritan history of doggedly not celebrating. Yes, the introduction to this book was a little longer than it was in the Easter book, but that was because I, I really wanted people to have a feel for how so many of our Christmas traditions had developed. And so the introduction is called Celebrating Christmas, but the introduction then has three sections, and one is called A Brief History of Christmas, then I talk about family and church celebrations of Christmas, and then I talk about rediscovering the true meaning of Christmas. And, and I think you're referring to that first section, yeah. A Brief History of Christmas. You know, the earliest Christians did not celebrate Christmas. There's no mention in the Bible of either Christmas or Easter. The word Easter appears once in the book of Acts, but there it's actually referring to Passover. There's nothing in the scriptures that tells us we should celebrate the birth or the death or resurrection of Jesus. It seems so natural to us now, but the earliest Christians, if they celebrated anything, it was the atonement, the good mm. news of the salvation. Other peoples around them, the Greeks, especially the Romans, Egyptians, others, love to celebrate birthdays. They love to celebrate anniversaries. I think they love to celebrate everything. <laughs> they love to celebrate everything. And in fact, one early post-apostolic church leader, Origen, thought the idea of celebrating Christ's birth was terrible. It was too pagan. You know, Romans celebrate the birthdays of their emperors. Greeks, you know, celebrate various important days of their gods' lives. And we're not going to do that. But early Christians couldn't help it. And so eventually in the 4th century, the 300s, they began to do it kind of unofficially. And then by the 400s, they had settled on it and it became a feast, a feast of the church. And chose the day not because they thought that was the actual day, but it was a convenient day. Right. It's interesting that a lot of times they thought it was in the spring. 
And then later they associated that early spring date with his conception. That was when things began. And so nine months later, it just happens to fall in December. But there are a number of holidays in the Roman world and the surrounding pagan world that fell in midwinter in December. And so it seemed like a convenient time for them. Yeah, I have a little sidebar article that talks about how Christmas got to be on December 25th. <laughs> I really like this picture of your home, which you say your neighbors have sometimes called Little Temple Square. <laughs> well, the facing image of celebrating Christmas, the introduction is Temple Square at Christmas time. And then there's a small image on the opposite page of Manger Square in Bethlehem, all lit up likewise. Later, when we get into the section, the introduction about family celebrations of Christmas, um, you know, we have a picture of a Christmas tree and a nativity, but then we have our own home. And I love Christmas and I do it up. I, it takes me three days before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day, and the day afterwards to get all those branches wrapped and all those lights out. So it's kind of fun. Now, through the years, your kids, obviously different ages every every year. Amazing <laughs> how kids how that do works. that. And so you've had a lot of experience in adapting which stories, which songs. Let me ask you this. If you start right at the beginning and four weeks before, does anybody get tired of all this Christmas celebration? You know, it's amazing they don't. And it's become a real feature of our family's rhythm in December. We take our normal evening scripture study and prayer time and expand it out. And we have our little daily Christmas devotional. And the kids call it Doing Christmas. We've got to do Christmas. And they're usually the ones, as we get busy with things in the evening, they say, we've got to do Christmas. In fact, I remember once Elaine and I had gone out to a dinner party. And so the children were home with a sitter. And we got home quite late. And we had anticipated the babysitter to put them to bed. And Sammy refused to go to bed because we had to do Christmas. And as tired as that little guy was, he got our Advent book out and he had picked the story and the carol and the and the scripture reading. And, you know, we still did it at like, you know, 1145 at night. So <laughs> I've never had my children say they don't want to do it. Just as an example, maybe pick a day or two and show the type of thing you would do on a day with your family. Well, we have two different things kind of going in tandem. We do actually formally celebrate Advent, which means the four Sundays before Christmas, either Sunday afternoon or usually in the evening, we have an Advent wreath and we have the Advent candles. And each week we add another candle that we light. And we have several scriptures that kind of go with the themes. Um, different traditions vary on the themes, but kind of a typical one is hope, love, joy, peace. And so the first Sunday we have scriptures that talk about the hope we have of the coming of Christ. And we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And then and the next week is going to be love, you know, God so loved the world, and then joy, and then peace. So that's the more serious one. But the daily ones, and I actually put this in Appendix 2 of the book, we just have come up with a list of Christmas stories we like. And I've found a bunch of prophecies of the coming of Jesus and arranged them chronologically so it starts with Adam and it ends up with the Annunciation to Joseph and then to Mary. And so we have one of those each day. And then we have a Christmas carol for each day. And, you know, there are dozens of Christmas carols, but we make sure we sing, you know, 25 different ones. And then we have our family prayer. And then the kids actually do the fun stuff, the Advent calendar, and we have a treat. Mm. So the whole thing takes about a half hour. But since you asked me just off the cuff, there's one story that we love, and it's about a Christmas pageant that goes awry. It's a little Midwestern town, and there's a very slow child. And this means something to us since our, our son has challenges due to autism. And this big boy, his name is Wally Perlane. They give him the smallest part they can, the Christmas pageant. He's going to be the innkeeper. So they're going through the pageant, and, and Wally's only line is, No room! And so Joseph and Mary come up to him, and Wally says, No room! And Joseph and Mary sadly turn away. They don't know where they're going to stay that night. And Wally Perling's face drops, and he gets sad, and his lip begins to quiver. And he says, Joseph, come back. You can stay in my room. 
And then the kind of close of the story is that some people thought the Christmas pageant had been ruined, but others thought it had been better than ever. I just love little stories like that. So, you know, we have these Christmas stories for each day. And then we read the prophecy to get it folks a little bit more religious. Yeah. And that's our scripture reading for that day. And then, you know, we, we try to set the example for our kids that, you know, as we offer prayer, it's not just our daily prayer. We thank God for the season. But, you know, in that particular case, if I were offering the prayer, I'd say, Heavenly Father, help us be more like Wally. Mm. You know, help us just really want to love and care for people and help us remember that at Christmas time. So I don't know if that's what you were asking. It but is. that's the kind of thing we do. If your kids came to my house, the first couple of weeks of that might feel kind of empty. Oh. <laughs> compared with what they're used to. But I, I, I'm reading this and trying to learn from it. Well, you know, now that you know what our family traditions are like at Christmas, you kind of have a sense where I got this idea for the earlier Easter book. Yeah. Because I wanted Easter to have something at least for every day in the week before Easter. Because we had already developed this tradition of doing so much in the four weeks before Christmas. And, you know, Christmas is great, but really Easter still is the most important holiday. And, and even in this Christmas book, I try to bring the atonement into it regularly. Um, the artwork, I don't know if you noticed this, the artwork in that chapter is all about Gethsemane, crucifixion, resurrection, which seems like an odd thing to do in a Christmas book. But that's why Christmas is so joyful. You know, the babe of Bethlehem just lay there in his manger, wrapped up. He didn't do anything, you know. <laughs> and a quote I used in the Easter book, there would be no Christmas if there had not been Easter. The babe of Bethlehem would have been simply a baby if it had not been for the glory of Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the garden tomb. Also, you talk about Joseph and Mary, their lineages, and we kind of get to know them a little bit and why they're thought of the way they are. I think sometimes we look at what our Christian friends of other faiths do, and because it's a little different than us, it's unfamiliar, we kind of shy away from it. So, for instance, our Orthodox and our Catholic friends do venerate Mary so much that I think we kind of are cautious of that. She's a chosen and precious vessel, clearly is this very important figure, but she's also a very accessible figure. The way she's described in the narrative of Luke, she's a young woman. We don't know exactly the age. People like to say it was about 14 or 15, and, and Jewish girls did marry young, but we don't know the actual age. But, you know, to have an angel come and say, you're going to bear the Son of God, and yet the faith of this girl, you know, well, how's it going to be? Well, the power of the highest will overshadow you, and that whole thing we call the Son of God, and be it according to thy word, you know, and she just accepts it in faith. But the one I really wanted to talk about was Joseph, because we do talk about Mary, but Mary's there in the story. She's the mother of Jesus. Joseph's just the stepfather, or the foster father, or the guardian. And so I love the fact that by taking the, the chapters of the infancy narratives in the order I did, that Joseph got first billing, if you will. Because Matthew uses him as his principal character, with so the genealogy. I, yeah, with the genealogy, which is actually tracing the legal descent through Joseph's line. And then the annunciation that comes to Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy espoused wife. And the baby's born, and Joseph takes the baby and calls him Jesus. And, you know, I'm a dad. This book is set up with not just the narrative, but it has little sidebar articles on music and Christmas traditions and history, but also these reflection sidebars. And I have one called Joseph and Jesus, Our Children and Us where I reflect on what it must have been like for Joseph to raise a child that was not his own. And, and I observe that anyone who's fostered or adopted children certainly can identify with Joseph. But, you know, even those of us who have been blessed with biological children, we should still identify with Joseph because our children really aren't our own, right? They're still yeah. spiritual children of heavenly parents, and we're just holding them in trust. 
I, I love the example of Joseph. You know, he loved and protected his young wife. He received revelation and he was brave in protecting this child that he was given stewardship over. And so we have a tradition. We don't do it as regularly as some of these other traditions we've mentioned, but sometimes I give every member of my family, including my mother when she comes over for Christmas Eve, um, just a little postcard with, uh, you know, a Dewey or Olson image of Christ. And it's usually Mary and the baby Jesus or Joseph and baby Jesus or maybe the Holy Family. And we all write on the back some gift we're going to give Jesus that year. And no one has to show each other what it is. But I think it's interesting. The kids always put their cards up on the wall, so I know they're thinking about it. But I always get a picture of Joseph holding the baby Jesus. And, you know, without fail, I I look at this and I think, wow, he was so wonderful to Mary and Jesus. Am I measuring up, you know? How Hmm. am I to Elaine? How am I to Sam and to Rachel? And, you know, the gift I want to give Jesus that year and every year is to be more like Joseph the carpenter. I want to be a strong man. I want to be a man who seeks and gets revelation to care for his family. You know, I I want to treat my wife like a chosen and precious vessel. I want to see my children as treasures. And so I was really grateful I had a chance to feature Joseph more in this book than we sometimes do. Well, it really points out the dreams, and you pointed that that word dreams translated can also mean visions. I think either way you take it, whether he's having an open vision or he's receiving a revelation in a visionary dream, the point is it's revelation. But Joseph in Matthew's account has a prototype in Joseph in Egypt who, you know, saved his family as Joseph saves his family. They both took their families to Egypt. They both interpreted dreams. Joseph is a prophetic figure. And we've mentioned Joseph and Mary, but Zacharias and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, all of the major players are prophetic people. Not perfect. Zacharias kind of makes a mistake. He, he, you know, rebounds from it. Surprise. Which is wonderful, though, because we make mistakes, but we can still seek and get revelation inspiration in Mark says that Joseph was a carpenter, but Matthew says that Jesus was a carpenter. So, you know, Joseph taught him a trade, but as a Jewish father, he probably taught him the law. He taught him how to pray. You know, Joseph was, we would say, the priesthood leader, but Joseph was the leader of the family religiously. Yes. Yeah, we have that story at the end of Luke 2, don't we, of the only boyhood story of Jesus when Mary and Joseph go to the feast of the Passover, right? The other thing that's really fun is to look at what we, quote, know about Christmas and what we really don't know about Christmas. If people say, tell the Christmas story, we, we hear everyone tell about the three wise men, which you point out. Or the three kings, right? Sometimes kings. we fast forward and they become kings all of a sudden. But there's, there are no numbers. They're wise men. And we all think we even know their names yeah, because of tradition. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, Matthew 2, this is in chapter 4 of our book, but, you know, Matthew talks about these wise men, the Magi. We only know there are two or more because it's plural, but we don't know there are three. In some early Christian traditions, there were 12. They don't receive their names till about the fourth century. And it is very interesting. We settle on the number three because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We assume that each one gave one of those gifts, and they became kings. And, and this happened earlier than I thought, actually. I thought it was you know late antiquity or medieval period when this came up. But early Christians in the second century, so that's the 100s A.D., even before Christmas had become a feast of the post-apostolic church, they combed the Old Testament for any prophecy they thought might relate to the coming forth of Jesus. Mm. And so there are prophecies in the Psalms and Isaiah about kings coming to the brightness of thy, thy rising. And, oh, well, so kings came to see Jesus. Those, those wise guys, they must have been kings, you know? Even the fact that camels would come across the desert with gold and frankincense. See, that's how our camels got into it. We have a creche, and it's a big part of our Christmas tradition. We have an scene and every year the kids get to pick out one more figure you know and add to it so it's quite a crowd right now but you know that conflates not just the Matthean story and the Lucan story 
you know, wise men and shepherds and stars and everything all together. But, you know, it has all these other figures like the animals, which are not in the Bible. The camel and the donkey and the dove and yeah, the, raf- yeah. the rafters of the cave. Right, right. <laughs> Interesting. So we have a few sidebars there. There is much about Christmas traditions as anything. You know, how the wise men became kings. I have a little sidebar in the tradition of giving gifts at Christmas time. But along with that knowledge, which is very interesting and instructive, and I think teaches us to not always assume we know what we think we know, mm-hmm. but then you get to the core of it with the scripture, with the hymn. In this case, uh, right after that, what shall we give? To the babe in the manger. There's the scriptural yeah, lesson. Yeah, that's a beautiful song, and I think many members of the church know that. Um, it's a Mac Wilberg arrangement. It's a Catalonian carol that he really wanted to set, and, and he works frequently with David Warner, who's quite a wordsmith. He's got a poetic touch. and So Brother Warner took this old Catalonian carol and, and made an English paraphrase that connects our experience accepting the Savior with the wise men. They gave gold, you know, frankincense, spices, you know, we've got plenty of those things, what shall we give? But it actually walks through his whole ministry. What shall we give the boy in the temple? What shall we give the man by the sea, thinking the ministry by the Sea of Galilee? Palms at his feet and Hosanna's uprising. The triumphal mm-hmm. entry, are these enough for him to carry the tree, the crucifixion, and then it comes to the resurrection? And at the end, it says, in view of the fact of his ministry and his saving sacrifice and his resurrection, all we have to offer him are tears for his mercy. I mean, that's a beautiful lesson and doctrine in a song. I want to talk briefly about the art, since our time is limited here. Lots of photographs. I'm looking at one of modern Nazareth in mm-hmm. Galilee. Also, you've paired them. Uh, they had a wonderful painting from a James Tissot painting of Joseph the Carpenter. And right across you have a scene from Nazareth Village, which is a modern-day place where people can go and Kind of like a theme park, if you will. Yeah, it, it, you go and you see people working and dressed. It's, it's like Jamestown for the Well, for the in New that Testament. particular instance that you reference, it's a facing set of pages. Yeah. And so you've got the Tissot anxiety of St. Joseph, and then we set the photograph from the historical village the exact same size and the exact same place on the facing page. And the colors even kind of match. I mean, that really was fun to do. Usually the photographs are to give the readers a sense of place. Most of us don't get a chance to go to the Holy Land, so to kind of see the vistas, the landscape, or the churches that mark those places. The art's usually meant to kind of evoke or recreate what the events must have been like. But as you say, sometimes, you know, you can put the two together, and that's really fun. This is sort of like a humanity teacher mixed together with Christmas story time. Because <laughs> well, I mentioned could... <laughs> I was in classics, and, and we do a lot of humanities, interdisciplinary stuff, and so Which I had that background. I think is wonderful, because you've got Carl Block, but then you've got from Walter Rain and, and others, all mixed together, uh-huh. but all, obviously uh, you've approved these. Well, I, I picked them all. Yeah, yeah and, I picked and, all and the And there's art. a feeling about them, even the medieval ones yeah, that I show. Yeah, Angelico and Giotto. I mean, I tried to give some really great masterworks, but you know, some of my favorite ones are fairly unknown painters. For instance, there's a Juvenet, a French artist that we use as the facing page for the King of Israel, the Matthew 2 chapter of the Adoration of the Magi, which is just gorgeous. There's this one painting called the Jesse Tree that we use with the Jesse genealogy of Jesus, kind of a medieval painting showing this tree growing out of the loins of Jesse with all the kings and the marrying Jesus at the top. One we put in the very back before the index was by a little-known French painter, Léon Francois Comer, and it's the Annunciation of the Shepherds, but it's in French. And it's just gorgeous. It's a little unfamiliar, but that notwithstanding, it's the angel saying the good tidings of great joy, and it catches the shepherds. My goal was to use a broad spectrum of art. I mean, I looked everywhere just to get a wide variety 
to kind of I'd never even it. seen this before, nor heard of the painter. Yeah, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. Though, isn't it? I mean, the angel is clearly otherworldly and luminous and from heaven. And those shepherds, they're just down and dirty guys. They're just sprawled on the ground, you know, <laughs> half clothed in skins, you know. But uh, yeah, so we put it in the back so it wouldn't distract people too much, but it's a gorgeous painting. Something that may be a bit of a personal project at the very end, you talk about Christmas with autism, pairing that with the Karl Block famous painting of Christ and the young child, where they're both looking, and really the child is kind of looking out like, are you going to be okay to me? Yeah. This deals with one of your children and how you've adapted, which is something that anybody has to do for individual family members, depending on the circumstances. Right. Well, you know, I start this appendix, this is Appendix 3, and I say, you know, much of this book presupposes rather conventional Christmases where families can gather and, and do traditional things and read and sing and do these things together. But many families like ours, if you have someone with special needs, you have to adapt. And in the early years of our journey with autism, when Sam still had lots of sensory processing disorder issues and other problems, Christmas was a nightmare. You know, things that we love, and the traditional lights and the sounds and the scents mm. and the foods were all very uncomfortable changes for him. All and this you know, new stuff, even in the very house. It was a sensory overload. You know, why is the chair moving for a Christmas tree? Why are these lights? Why are you playing that music so loudly? Daddy, why are you singing so loudly? Mm. You know, all these things were hard for him. Didn't like the Christmas food, you know, and... And he wouldn't participate in our Advent celebration or in our daily Christmas devotional. And he would cry. And it was just... I thought Christmas was ruined, Mm. but not just because he wasn't learning the things that I wanted him to learn about Jesus. All these things that we had done with Rachel from the time she was little. Sam was born when she was six, so she had six years and then a couple more, and these were fun traditions for her, and they weren't working anymore. It was really painful for us, but we learned not to give up on the traditions that were important to us, but to do things to help him adjust and prepare, and now he loves Christmas. Now the day after Thanksgiving, we pull out the Christmas decorations. He sees the Advent candles. He says, hope, love, joy, peace, Christmas, and he's the <laughs> one who wants to do our daily devotional, but we had to adapt. We sing every day in December, but we sing a lot less loudly and rambunctiously than we used to. You know, imagine me, you know, baritone the Tabernacle Choir. I mean, it was horrible that I couldn't sing. That's how I worship. And all these things were hard. But my daughter, Rachel, is Sam's biggest coach, mm. biggest therapist. And, you know, we use these, these techniques to get him through school where we map out every hour of every day and we have charts for every day of the week and what's going to happen. And if he knows what's going to happen, he's okay. She made a checklist for Christmas Eve day and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and laid out for him what was going to happen and let him help her write the nativity play. And then he wanted a part and all these Mm. things. And it just has turned into a wonderful thing. And, you know, now... As we sing, and I hear my wife's, you know, alto, and my my daughter's soprano, and finally my son's little voice singing. You know, I well, I'm breaking up now, but you know, I can't even sing. And I'm just praying that what we're doing together will leave an indelible mark on his memory and his spirit, because he does know Jesus now, and he does know mm. what Christmas is about, and he loves it. Which is the point of the book. Yeah. To take the time, the Advent, to celebrate it leading up to it. And even days after, as you describe in another place here, things that you do even after. Again, a very family-friendly, a very useful. It's a rare book, I think, that your kids could flip through and have fun, and you could sit down and read. And and do some pretty serious biblical exposition. (laughs) And and learn a lot about some comparisons and and what it meant in Greek and and why we do what we do. It's Good Tidings of Great Joy in Advent Celebration of the Savior's Birth by Dr. Eric D. Huntsman. Eric, thank you for coming. Steve, thanks for having me. And I know it's August when we're taping, but happy Advent. Merry (laughs) Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you and yours. She is born the divine.
Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. And thank you to our guest, Dr. Eric Huntsman, for generously sharing his thoughts on Advent and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Our email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Our Twitter, at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.